Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, September 20th, 2021. My name's Show Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, today we are going to have a little bit of a break in the format, but in general, we are always going to have a conversation, discuss what's going on in the world, in our society, and in our lives. You know, it's all interconnected. We are going to do our best to pull facts and opinions from any corner, no matter where they come from, and irrespective of source, we're going to try to keep our discussions in good faith, and hopefully... On this journey, we will keep ourselves and our loyal listeners adequately informed. Yeah. You know, we realize that um, we are only human. We don't know everything. Our perspective is not the only one mat- that matters. We're not on the ivory tower. We're not We're not looking down. We, uh, we have, you know, we at least try to give credence that other people can look at the same facts and come to different conclusions. So we... Hope to be adequately informed talking to you as well. So, Evan, what are what are we doing today? Today we have a very special guest. We have one of our adequately informed interviews, and that is going to be the bulk of the podcast today. So let's get into it. So I would say that our guest today needs no introduction, but I think that that would be a little bit confusing for a lot of people. So I'll go ahead and give an introduction. Um, Our guest today is Derwin Lester. Derwin is a veteran. He is an author and a publisher, the owner of the publishing company Divided by Zero Books. And much like your humble narrators, Joe and Evan, he is also a podcaster who hosts his own podcast, The Blanket Fortress of Solitude. And we are happy to have him on the show today to discuss Iraq, Afghanistan, publishing, podcasting, and whatever whatever gaps that, uh, that he wants to fill in. Derwin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Evan. So, uh, I want to give the audience a little bit of background information on your life. Um, you moved around a lot as a child, and, and you, you've you said to me in the past that you've had something like 32 addresses in your life. So, uh, wh- what's your favorite address that you've had? Well, I think this address makes 33 where I'm at. I think so. My mistake. Um, my mistake. Well, currently my favorite address. <laughs> no, you're, you're fine. It's, it's You're not my realtor. Um my current favorite address is my house I live in now because I get to hang out with my wife all the time. Um, before that, we lived. She's going to be listening to this, isn't she? Oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> before that, we lived. I was about four or five. We lived in an apartment complex in Alaska. And I remember falling through the ice. It was like a foot and a half of ice, but like I was three feet tall at the time. So it felt like a bigger deal back then. And, (laughs) and then like we lived in Kentucky for a bit and I remember riding a bicycle in the house and, you know, just lots of childhood stuff. Yeah, of course. I don't remember. um, There is, we might probably one of my favorite places we lived there is a trailer park we lived in for three or four years. And I had a lot of just crazy wild friends there. And, you know, yeah, we had a good time. Yeah, probably probably the trailer park before this house. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so clearly a, a rich tapestry there. So what what I want to get into a little bit is what what led you to join the military? And did you know, we've also talked in the past off off screen about um your experience of 9/11 and what that day meant to you and still means to you. Can you can you fill us in a little bit on that? I certainly can. Um when I was 19 in 2006, I was a pothead going nowhere at the speed of light. And mom was like, you should get out now. And the army was hiring because we had a quarter million troops in uh, combat zones. And so they're like, wow, you've got four weekend limbs and a pulse. You too can be army strong. And, <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in the army. And what was your second question? Yeah. Oh yeah, sort of um, the the experience of nine eleven and how that affected you. Since we just came up on the anniversary a couple weeks ago. Sure. Um, well, I was in the trailer park when in in Holland, Michigan, when nine eleven happened, and you know it was. We were so. It. We didn't even know what Islam was, right? Like, if you asked me back then, what's the difference between a Sikh, a Sunni, a, uh, a Shiite, and a, and a Muslim, right? I would have been like, I don't know what those words mean. Granted, you know. So it was, it was such a different world back then. It was just like, oh, we've been attacked by these people. We don't really understand who they are, at least our corner of the world didn't looking back at it now from 34 my entire adult life was spent in reflection of 9-11 right because i was part of the response in the iraq war right like i enlisted in 2006 i went to iraq in 09 and and then i i, I did a 13-year career in the military and it was all it affected my life and the life of everybody I worked with, everybody I knew, uh, to this day, really. Like, mm -hmm. and and I didn't even really realize that until I visited the 9-11 Memorial uh, this year in June. And where I'm just walking around and, like, having myself a good cry. And, you know, because <laughs> that was, yeah. to me, that was, I realized that was the the first battlefield and the war that my generation of soldier took place in, you know, that was the opening battlefield and the first of 10,000 after that. Mm -hmm. So I know that something you've, you've mentioned to me before is sort of the contrast between how you experienced that memorial and, and what it felt like uh, the other people at the memorial were experiencing. How, how, how did that affect you, seeing others there who maybe didn't have the same connection to it? Well, it was it was very strange um, because, you know, I'm seeing the, the faces of the dead that just kind of stretch out into forever. And, you know, there's pieces of the rubble. And then you're like, oh, you know, people burn to death right here you know, and you could almost feel the ghost of it all. 
And then there's a bunch of kids running around and playing and people are taking pictures and smiling next to the rubble where people were burned into. And I'm like, well, my first response is, what the fuck are you guys doing? But it was <laughs> clearly I was having a different experience. And I think it was because I spent most, I spent my 20s and a bit of my 30s as a part of the response to all of that. I, I, I knew, fi- I know firefighters, I know police officers, you know, I know hundreds of soldiers that I keep in contact with to this day. Um, and, and I, I, I realized, oh, there's no reason you know, none of us are lucky, right? None of us are special. We're just lucky, you know? And these guys that died that day just got unlucky, you know? And I'm like, there's no reason that wouldn't have been me. I saw myself and, you know, I, I, I saw myself and people I knew, right? Just normal, average, everyday people. And, and all of the, and just the rows of the dead and the, the guys that ran up the stairs and, you know, and, and the firefighters who tried to run up there and save as many as they could. And they all died for their, you know, problems anyway. And, and I thought, Oh, cause I, but yeah, we there, just, I had a, a day yeah. or two. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you, you, you go ahead, man. I, I lost the, train oh, no, of I was just going to say that. Yeah. It, it, it really, it, it does kind of make you think, right. There's, uh, there was really nothing separating you or me from any of that other than you know we don't we don't live in new york we didn't work in that place and so um it 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 just kind of contributed i think to that chaotic feeling of the time right that it really could have been anyone and i i think it's so interesting that you you hearken back to that reflecting on it all these years later yeah and you know I had a different experience of the war on terror than I would venture to say 80% of the American public. And because, you know, for a lot of people, it was just something they saw on TV and they heard politicians talk about every two to four years. And, you know, for me, for my generation of soldier, it was like, you know, we were, I was, I know I was reading the army times. I was looking at how many troops were in what country and, you know, and I was keeping a real close track of it. And, and, you know, and for a lot of people at the nine 11 Memorial, they were just visiting a museum and you know what, that's fine. You know, I don't want to say, I don't, I'm not trying to look down at anybody. They just had a different experience than me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, I guess I could see, I could put myself in that day, you know, that that's what I was doing. I don't think anybody else, fewer people, the ones smiling for the camera weren't putting themselves in that day. Nothing wrong about it. Right. I just, I think that was Mm -hmm. the difference there, you know? Yeah. And I, oh man, I'm such a bummer though. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was... Mm-hmm. I was at my father-in-law's house and he's like, Hey, so, you know, what was the best part of New York? And I was like, it was when we went to nine 11 where all those people burned to death. 
And he's like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, I've I've been to that memorial and it's a it's a very powerful place if you let if you let it be. Um, yeah. you know, it's very polished and referential, but then also you do just run into the problem of, I mean, it's just kind of a nice park. And if you don't truly, you know, grapple with the gravity of it, then it's yeah. easy to be flippant around it. Um, but then like, you also get into like, the, you know, world of like, how long is this a super serious thing that we have to be super serious about? you know, at one point are young people just like exempt from that. It's just, it's just weird to see it happening in real time in our own lives. Sure. I, I, I didn't talk to this guy, but I remember it, it felt like there was a place where they put sad guys to be sad with their feelings outside the gift shop. Right. Because I found my, my wife's in the gift shop and I'm in this sort of waiting area where all the sad guys are. And then there's this couple across the, the hallway from me. And this guy is just breaking down, sobbing. And this other guy is kind of holding him, trying to comfort him. And the guy's sobbing, saying, and now he'll always live forever. And he'll be immortalized. And I'm like, oh, holy fuck, you lost somebody here. And, <laughs> and I'm, just, mm. I'm just trying to keep yeah. it together that day. And, you know, and then I went, uh, uh, back to the hotel and just had myself a good cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man. Anyway, enough about nine 11. This is sad. <laughs> yeah. So let's <laughs> go on to the much happier subject of, uh, your experience in Iraq. How, how, how was that for you? Happier than nine 11. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I was there kind of in between, uh, horrific insurgencies. Um, I was there in 09 to 10 and I spent most of my time in air conditioned hospitals and I, cause I was a, a medic working in a hospital and yeah, it was, you know, we had air conditioning, we had Wi-Fi, which was a bigger deal in 2009 than it is now. And, <laughs> Yeah, come on. Mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, yeah, it's, I, who cares, right? <laughs> I realize how old I sound right now. And it was, you know, I, I, I saved my first life there. I And it was just a big fat guy who overheated. And then I gave him an IV and that was it, right? But I was, I'd have been a medic for five seconds. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was a really big deal at the time. And I'm sure it's a big uh, deal to that guy yeah. to this day, right? <laughs> you know, I ran into him a couple of times after, and he was always excited to buy whatever I had uh, in my bag when I was going through a line at the shop on the base. And But yeah, no, we had like, um, I was, there's a phrase called FOBIT, right? Where uh, a FOB is, stands for a forward operating base. And a FOBIT is the guy who never leaves the FOB. He just stays there and enjoys the, the 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 gentler side of the war, which is mostly what I did. Mm-hmm. I I went on one road mission to Baghdad and back, and I went on a three day pass to Qatar, and you know I met someone um, in the Qatari military right at a party, and you know it was it was just a good time. 
right? Like I, mm-hmm. it was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you didn't do a whole lot interacting with the locals or anything like that? Um, very little. I, I, you know, I, I worked in a dental clinic for like a week or two and we had locals come in and we gave, we provided them free dental care. And I remember this guy, he had this big, like pussy abscess in the back of his mouth. And I remember like, it, it smells just like it sounds. And I remember I'm holding suction (laughs) while the dentist is like poking at the abscess. Right. And this was the day that the WWE girls came to visit the motor pool. And, uh, I had my hand inside an Iraqi dude's mouth instead, which I resent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you did, you were able to leave Iraq and, uh, clearly we eventually more or less left Iraq altogether. Um, can you tell yeah. us about how you experienced U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq? Well, to my knowledge, and my knowledge is a little bit old probably, but I think we still control the U.S. embassy in Iraq, which is what the green zone used to be. And I remember in 12, we pulled out our final convoys And then almost immediately, the Sunnis and the Shiites started killing each other again. It was the next day. The president, who was a Sunni, put a bounty on the head of the vice president, who was a Shiite, or vice versa, whichever. And and then I remember ISIS rose, and then the, you know, the Iraqi army just crumbled, like, you know, like cheap paper, like the Afghans just did. And I remember hearing that, because I was reading the Army Times still, and I remember hearing that there was Iraqi soldiers saying, if the Americans don't come and save us, we're just going to give up. And I'm like, bro, they're going to cut your fucking heads off if you do that. <laughs> like, because <laughs> like, cause I, I remember being so frustrated because there was, there was an engagement, right? It was West Iraq. I don't remember the exact city, but it was one of the big cities along the the Euphrates River. And you had something like 12,000 Iraqi army soldiers with American training, American weapons. And you had like 800 ISIS fighters, right? These are guys that are like have old Soviet era stuff. and, you know, sometimes it take meth and eat people's hearts, right? So they're probably scary. You know, I never had to fight those guys, so I can't really talk too much. But, you know, I did see the video of the guy fucking doing a bunch of, like, putting a bunch of meth in his arm and then ripping this guy's heart out and eating it on camera. And I'm like, Jesus, fuck, that is intense. <laughs> but you had 12,000 Iraqi soldiers against 800 ISIS troops the Iraqi soldiers took a little bit of small arms fire. They broke and ran. And then the ISIS troops captured 1,600 Iraqi soldiers, right? The Iraqi soldiers who got captured outnumbered the ISIS troops two to one, and they all got their heads cut off. I'm like, guys, you can't, like, surrender here. And <laughs> you, you have know, the and, numbers and, advantage. But the different – I mean, I'm not great at math, but – and. The difference 
And, and again, I understand Middle East politics from the perspective of a guy who used to be a buck sergeant, right? So I'm very much on the ground level. So any high level analysis, I'm probably not the guy for. But there was a group called the Kurds in Iraq, and they held together, right? They're very westernized. They're, they're Western. They had a Western liberal democracy for the region in that they didn't push gay people off of roofs to see if they could fly, right? They didn't outright murder good, people. Good first like, step. I yeah. know. You know, you, you wouldn't think that's where the bar is at. <laughs> Some places it kind of is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so they had uh, – uh, uh, what a defining trait of Western liberal democracies is a little, there's functional societies. And in those functional societies, there's a certain level of trust and that makes the society function. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they were able to hold out against ISIS because their society was so patently different than the sort of like 13th century, like religious totalitarian warlords that ISIS was and kind of like the Taliban. And, and those guys held out for so long, it was politically viable for the United States and, their, and our allies to go back in and provide air cover while the Kurds and, let's be honest, the Iranians and the Iraqis went in there and, you know, killed ISIS. It was kind of a dog's mm-hmm. breakfast. Everybody was in there at one point around. This is 2014 mm-hmm. I'm talking about. But – and – you, Evan, you mm-hmm. and I talked about Afghanistan briefly once, and I think the big difference is that there wasn't because the Kurds were almost semi-autonomous, right? Like they were making oil refining deals with other nations by themselves, surpassing Baghdad altogether because Baghdad was a corrupt mess, and that there wasn't that in Afghanistan. So that's one of the reasons I think Afghanistan folded like paper. But that's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something that we have talked about is the, the the without the presence of the Kurds, there was really nothing to keep Afghanistan stabilized after the U.S. withdrew the troops. And it's something that we, Joe and I have talked about on this show as well. Um, so what do you make of the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, either in concept or in execution? What what are your thoughts on, on this? This is something that I think that the the listeners are going to really be interested in. Well, flattery will get you everywhere, Evan. Um, <laughs> I never made, I never made it to Afghanistan. So there's a lot of first person perspective I'm lacking. Right. However, um, I think the easy choice would have been to just stay and keep funneling just enough people to give the appearance of a functional democracy, right? Enough people, enough money, right? Because if you throw money at problems, you can hide a lot of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what they did. <laughs> that's exactly what they did. For and a long time. It was kind of like, you remember in 09 when we bailed out a bunch of corporations or last year for that matter, And you had what was called like a zombie corporation where like it was Mm -hmm. only held together with money, but it wasn't really functional on its own. It reminds me a little bit of that, Mm -hmm. right? Like they just wanted to put enough money and effort into it to make it look like we were doing something. 
but we didn't really want, if we wanted to, you know, keep the world safe for American democracy and spread democracy in Afghanistan and kill anybody. It, we, we didn't, we didn't really want to put and this isn't, I'm not talking about the people on the ground. I'm talking about congressional leadership over a 20 year period. That's everybody. Mm-hmm. That's Republicans and Democrats and independents and everybody. Mm-hmm. If we, it was easier to kick the can down the road. We didn't really want to do the sort of, we didn't want to put the time, the effort and the blood and the, into really doing it. I don't think, I don't know that that's. Yeah. And that assumes that we were doing just enough to play whack-a-mole for 20 years. Right. And again, I'm not there. I wasn't there. So I don't, I'm hesitant to, you know, say things that I'm unsure of. So, you know what I mean? Like that goes back to, I try mm. to assume my own magnificent ignorance, right? <laughs> if I'm not sure on something, I try not to talk too much about it, but, but yeah, we didn't. But I mean, I can, I, I can round this out for a bit. I mean, like, you know, we think back to successes of, you know, us, uh, intervention in a country like, you know, we think about like Japan or Germany in World War Two, how, you know, we defeated the enemy and then we were able to prop up a system of democracy in those countries and let it flourish. But, you know, there's one part of that where it really has to have like real true buy in from the people. And I don't know if that was necessarily the case from, you know, in Afghanistan and then also just like an incumbent insurgency that was always in the background that wasn't well, you, you in Japan how, or Germany. Well, you know how you stop that whole insurgent thing? And, and you, you stop before it starts, right? You're, you're familiar with the Dresden bombing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you do stuff like that, and I'm not... I'm not saying something on that scale is a good thing or even something we should have done. I'm saying that from if take all the humanity and emotion out of it, right? If you, we totally and without question obliterated the Japanese and the Germans so much so that they haven't been a problem since. And they probably won't be a military threat to anyone for the next 500 years because it's so deeply scarred into their culture. And I don't think we wanted to inflict that level of carnage, right? And that's probably a good thing that we didn't want to, but also that leads to stretching out wars for 20 years when he should have got out after Bin Laden died. And so it's complicated, right? There's not like... Well, yeah, that, well, yeah, it was, there was mission creep. Yeah. Because like, you know, I'm sure you can attest the military is good at certain things. And that is, you know, taking out military targets and, you know, doing things along those lines, but deciding, you know, trying to prop up a democracy in a country um, and just kind of not because like. I have read profiles where they talk about how like the U S came in and basically sided with 
warlords and militia leaders throughout the country yeah. to try and string together a legitimate government. And like the the people, you know, the people of those countries hated those people like they caused terror in their lives. And they're like, wait a minute, the yeah. Americans were supposed to come and promote like a good society. And they're siding with the guy who caused terror in our country, you know, during the 90s. Like what what's going on? Oh, yeah. No, I, I and again, I wasn't there, so I don't want to I don't want to mm-hmm. speak to that too much, but I'm not super shocked, I guess. Right. I was never part of anything close to that. Again, I worked in a hospital the whole time and we just treated people, but mm-hmm. it was, it was, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I, <laughs> I, I wish I had a better, more profound thing. I mean, to I think say. that's why everybody kicked I mean, everybody kicked it down the can down the road. I mean, um, it it was just such a quagmire of bad options to go forward. I mean, we're seeing that with the withdrawal now, like ripping off the Band-Aid has not been great, Um, but it's not. But it, you know, staying was also not great. Um, I, so I it's just been I'm, a, I'm, I'm glad that he did. And, and if this is what the war meant, right. If the war was something that most people forgot and they, not you guys, but like, it just, it, it felt like as a soldier, as a veteran, nobody really, it's like they were like, as a nation, we were all reminded collectively that we were fighting and dying in Afghanistan when that poor bastard fell off the side of the plane, you know, that was a horrific video. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, and, and if we're so that way, cause I know a lot of guys who are still in uniform and if the war means that little right now, right. It meant something 20 years ago and even 10 years ago. But right now, if it meant that little and us being God means that more good people. I knew one guy that died in Afghanistan more than more good people don't die needlessly in a stupid war that I am glad we left. I, I, I've heard a lot of different versions of things of what was going on there. And I don't know enough to give a definitive opinion on why things crumbled the way they did. I do know that something, a bone I have to pick with the American public portions of it is it feels like a lot of the times American conflict becomes content for people to consume and they have water cooler talks and like, Oh, we should go over here and we should bomb this and blah, 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 blah. And you know, it, some of the guys that get all excited about, oh, we're going to war, we're going to wave the flag. They never find their way into a recruiting office. And, mm-hmm. you know. Right. So it's, and, and again, I'm not, I think there's a very specific part that I'm thinking of right now. And, and these are a lot of people I grew up around. And, you know, I, because I, it, it, it sucks when you feel forgotten. Right. And 
when you're in the big green machine, it's this big, huge melodrama of how many times you're going to go. Are you going to be yourself when you come back? Or are you going to have like some weird PTSD moment and kill your family and then jump off a bridge or something? Right. And, and then you get back to the civilian world and everyone's like, Oh, we were in Afghanistan. I forgot. And I'm like, Oh, well fuck you guys. Like, (laughs) I, 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 that really sucks that it was so many people forget what they ask their soldiers to do. And that bothers me. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't speak to the macro level sort of, you know, policy wonk decisions and what was really going on and all of that. I, I, you know, I know in Iraq, the Kurds really didn't want to live. Uh, they want, cause in, in Kurdistan, what we called it, uh, women can walk around in blue jeans and a t-shirt. Right. And no one's going to throw big rocks at their face until they die. So that's a step up in some places. Yeah. And, right. you know, <laughs> dark, I know. But, and, and they didn't have a Kurdistan in Afghanistan. So I wonder if they had a Kurdistan, then maybe in two years we'd go back in there and, and do the same thing. Or maybe we just. Something I do appreciate about Joe Biden is that his kid died in the war, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so that means he had skin in the game. And so he could, he could look at what they were asking soldiers to do and say, oh, if I fuck this up, then other parents are going to have to lose a kid like I did. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to kind of play Monday morning quarterback with sports, right? Like it it, it doesn't really matter. Like some guy might tear his ACL, but at the end of the day, he's getting paid millions of dollars. He's going to be fine. But to apply that same logic to a military incursion feels a lot more callous, right? Um, Because there is, like you said, real skin in the game parents who will not have their children come home. And so I want to tie together a couple of these strands that we've had here um, and ask you what you think about the media coverage of war. And um, do you think the media does an appropriate job or what are your general attitudes towards, towards media institutions and how they talk about your profession and and the very real geopolitical things that you and people like you have been involved in. Um, uh, just rip on Tucker Carlson. Talking about the media in general. <laughs> I mean, I guess rip on Tucker Carlson because you know that guy's a turd, but he's one of those guys <laughs> that gets all excited about invading countries. But you know, he's in a penthouse in Manhattan. I mean, you know, and and. No, sorry, that, that's a rabbit. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that rabbit hole for another time. <laughs> um, I think, you know, if seeing that guy fall off that plane made for one hell of a story. And mm-hmm. that got a lot of people excited. And, you know, everyone's a little bit burnt out of the pandemic, so they wanted something else to be worked up about. So I think 
if it's profitable, they'll cover it in its most dramatic way, I think. And this is, you know, skipping toward conspiracy land, but I think there were <laughs> aspects of our, you know, I mean, like the, the there's companies that make money off the war, right? And then when Biden was like, we're going to pull out, all of a sudden, the media is like, oh, that's Joe Biden. We hate him, right? Not that, not just the Republicans, but the <laughs> Democrats, too. So, you know, I think generally speaking, the media does okay sometimes, depending on who's doing it, right? Like, you know, uh, the Republicans are going to be all about war and excited about it and you know, the Democrats also like war. They're just less open about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like they vote for these things too. <laughs> so, you know, they talk a good game, but you look at what they actually do, right? And they like having war and conflict and stuff. And, and I don't know. I think if, if it serves their interests, they'll cover the war and the soldiers and the veterans and things if it gets... If it's an election year, they will because the uh, uh, people always care more about the troops on even number of years. It seems like, mm -hmm. and it, 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 I know I'm really, I'm really <laughs> mad. <laughs> I, I, I'm not yeah. being positive right now. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, yeah let let it out. This is this is what this is this is what we want. Yeah, and yeah, I am. Um, and I think that at a certain level, you know, some some people care, especially the ones that were actually there are some news organizations started by veterans that have popped up that actually cover things from by reporters that had actually served as like Marine Corps veterans or stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, are there any of those publications yeah. that you want to spotlight right now? Coffee or die. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. It's a it's a sub subsidiary of Black Rifle Coffee Company. Um, you know they're pretty middle of the road politically speaking. Um, you know, yeah, they 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 seem to do an okay job. But awesome. yeah, no, it it, it they don't, I I don't hear. It's like this, right? I remember in January of 2020 and you know, the previous administration was going nose to nose with the Iranians, right? Look like we're in a small shooting conflict or we might be in one. And I remember everyone's like, Oh my God, can you believe we might go to war with Iran? And I hate to break it to you kids. We've been at war with the Iranians for like 25 years. And I remember in 2009 <laughs> being in a briefing in Kuwait where they said, hey, if you're a medic or an officer, raise your hand. And I raised my hand. And the dude says, congratulations, you have a bounty on your heads. And I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> that's new. I'm like 22, uh -huh. 23 at the time. And because it was, you know, and, and this isn't to say the Shah of Iran had a bounty on my head because my life's not that exciting. But, <laughs> you know, the Iranians were funneling weapons, fighters, money, and supplies to the insurgents in Iraq at the time. And so, you know, it kind of 
one plus one equaled two, if that makes mm. sense. And I remember, yeah, like we were fighting the Iranians then, you know, and this isn't a big secret. It's just no one reports on it. So, you know, yeah. Well, and I think it with most things, this stuff gets pretty complicated and you do a lot of relying on people who you understand to be authority figures on the subject matter to tell you how it is. And mm-hmm. then just for so many years, the people who were experts on the social, you know, on this subject matter just did not tell it how it is. That's, you know, I mean, That's like, you know, we can go into all this. I mean, the Irani, uh, Iran was, you know, funneling stuff into the insurgents on Iraq. Pakistan has been, you know, propping up the Taliban ever since we went, you know, ever since it was created. Yet Pakistan was uh, one of our allies in the region. And it's like, well, what what, what's even going on there? You know, like, what's the (laughs) point of the whole shtick? Um, So, you know, it's all just very complicated. That's a good question you know, all these different contradictory things. And it, you know, in some ways it all comes back to like nine 11 and it's like, we felt like we needed to do something and, you know, we did things and we're kind of, you know, just seeing the remnants of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, Derwin, do you have any follow up to that? Or if, if you have something else that you'd like to say sort of about, the military, our experience with the military as civilians, anything like that. Um, I'd like to give you the floor, but otherwise, um, I think it could be a great time to transition into talking about uh, your media endeavors and sort of what that looks like. And we could also take a break. <laughs> if, more positive. If, uh, yeah. Well, I structured um, this to end the... on a positive note. That's good. <laughs> that was, I'm trying not to get all my like really sad stories out there because I'm not trying to bum out your audience for two hours. But um, well, it's like this: it's I understand people have their own lives, and oftentimes they're so busy just trying to keep their own plate spinning, they don't have the time to know you know, what's going on in the town next door, let alone what country we're bombing this week. I get that. I just, you know, intellectually, I get that. But from like a pure sort of gut reaction, it's, you know, to, to see people ignore what's going on. And then all of a sudden when, it seems like the news tells them to get all excited about it and outraged. And can you believe what's happening to the women in Afghanistan? Yeah, they've been horrific to women and children there for the last 20 years. And it's kind of, it feels a little surface level. It feels a little like, I, I think Evan, I talked to you, it, it's, there's a certain person that feels like they cosplay what it means to be an American, right? Like they've mm-hmm. got the, you know, and this is dating a little bit, but like they have like the insurgent bumper sticker, hunting permit bumper sticker on their, you know, on their, their back of their car and they'd wave a flag and they get all excited. But it's, and other people 
you know, that's one version of that. And other people say, oh, we got to help women all over the world. But no, nobody at all was paying attention to what was going on in Afghanistan until about three months ago when we pulled out and everything fell apart. And then they realized, oh, there's stuff to do over there. Had we noticed 10 years ago, we could have actually done something. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's unfair for me to be angry at everyone. Right. And I don't really have it refined enough to know who to be angry at, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to withhold a lot of judgment, you know, so that way I don't put my foot too far in my mouth. So, Derwin, the first thing that we sort of bonded over was that we're both podcasters. And so you've been listening to Adequately Informed. I've I've been dipping my toes into the world of the Blanket Fortress of Solitude. Uh, Tell us about your experience podcasting. I did it in June of 2020 is when I started it. Uh, my editor had been telling me for years that I need, cause she was always good at seeing where the ball was going to go. Right. Like, and I was the guy that hit the ball right, or hit the puck, but she was always good. At, she was very much a Wayne Gretzky and she could see where the, the puck was going to go before I hit it. And it was fantastic partnership, right? And we're still great friends to this day, although we don't really work together on that level quite as much anymore. And it was it was a way to not feel as isolated during 2020. I guess I live with my beautiful wife who's far above my station. Don't get me wrong. Life's good there. But like that was, you know, I think we were four or five months into the two weeks to slow the spread and mm-hmm. <laughs> i my day job i work from home and i've been working from home for that basically since march of 2020 and pretty I long two of, weeks you know this was it was we're going on two years right now but it was you know like and, and and two that was right during uh, 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 the, the the riots after George Floyd was murdered, and there's all this unrest and fires and the virus and there was no vaccine and and you know it was it was a tense crazy time and at the time the smartest thing to do just seemed to be oh let's just keep our heads down like <laughs> let's just let's just stay home. You know, then you peek your head outside and you're like, oh, the world's still on fire. I'll go back in. And <laughs> and so I started podcasting as a way to kind of feel less disconnected from the universe. And it's evolved and changed and grown a lot. And I've gotten and yeah, it's 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 probably my main focus now, to be honest. So I know that Adequately Informed has kind of this, this structure where we kind of look at the, the news of the day, but Blanket Fortress of Solitude is a little bit different. What kinds of what kinds of programming do you have on that show for, for viewers who may be interested? Listeners, I guess. I always call them viewers. Well, you're a child of the TV like I am. Um, <laughs> there's For the first 50 episodes, there's almost no consistency. It's... You know, the, there's, I don't know, six or seven episodes where it's how to self-publish because I, you know, me and my partner built uh, 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 Divided by Zero Books together. And 
it was a lot of our experience together. And, and she always told me like, Hey, you should do this. And, and so I had a couple episodes and Hey, if you want to start self-publishing, this is how we did it. And then there's a few episodes that are just retrospectives on the books. And there's a few episodes that are interviews with, you know, interesting people I know, right? Like, like in December of last year, I got an interview with uh, a girl who is a travel nurse, right? And uh, the episode's called Nurse Jamie Gary. And uh, she was actually a mechanic in the motor pool in Iraq in my, in my old unit. And we reconnected and she said, yeah, I'm a COVID nurse in COVID wards. And I'm like, oh, do you want to come on my podcast and then talk about it? And then she did. And, you know, I got, uh, I'm friends with a doctor and he was kind enough to hang out with me one Saturday morning and just kind of tell me his story and what it's like being a, cause he was, he became a doctor and then COVID happened five minutes later. So he was kind of just thrown into the deep end of the meat grinder and, <laughs> you know, he's a hell of a guy and, you know, and, and so it's good to hear from his perspective and, I, and, and, so there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of short stories that I do on there too. I used to do all my short stories, my my you know content narratives through Amazon, but I found I could do more faster on Spotify, right? Like I could just record a podcast, I could just narrate and talk myself, and you know, and 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 yeah, I I like kind of doing that right I'll, i might publish a few more books but i think for the most part i'm just gonna lean into podcasting upcoming is actually a memoir that i did for my army experience and it's called late to formation and uh, uh formation is every morning soldiers they show up to work and they stand in a big box and their squad leader their sergeant counts everybody in his line and then everyone makes sure that all their people are alive and that's formation. And the, the phrase late to formation means like, Oh, cause to be on time, like if you had to go to formation at six o'clock in the morning, that means you need to show up at five fifty because the boss gets there at six o'clock. So you better, you're on his time. So you better be there at five fifty, or you're late to formation. And I was not always the most punctual. And so I thought, oh, this summarizes my entire 13 years. <laughs> and, and it starts in uh, October 2006, and it ends in, in, in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in a, a cold, shitty barracks. And it ends with a text message, me walking along a beach in South Carolina with my fiance, now wife, and in 2019. So kind of covers the whole gambit of the experience in between. And I'm excited for that. That's nine episodes. And so the podcast itself is going to turn into kind of a run of episodes, right? Like it'll be like, oh, I want to talk about the Star Wars movies for the next 11 episodes. So I'll just watch each movie and then talk about it. Something like that. I'm kind of playing a with a friend of mine because I don't. Really, yeah. A friend of mine had an ahead. idea um, to have a Star Wars podcast and call it. Now, this is podcasting. Would that be interesting yeah. <laughs> to you? <laughs> well, I would listen to it. That's a pretty good. That, that's a good title. 
I wish I thought of it myself. Oh, I should have just claimed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I think your friends should do it. I I I I've already got names picked out and everything. So I yeah, I think the blanket fortress of solitude is already stupid enough. So yeah, Which, can you explain the name for is, us? How did that come about? Um, I used to do vlogs on the Divided by Zero Books Facebook page. And I would just talk and say, hey, this is Darwin in the Blanket Fortress of Solitude. It's, it was just kind of a goofy, stupid combination of things, right? It was, you know, life is so serious and hard. And I'm like, oh, this could, this is nonsensical. This is, you know, it's a stupid name. And I really loved it. <laughs> it just, you know, and, and it reminded me of being a kid. It reminded me of, you know, Right, I mean, me being in college and playing the floor is lava, dressed up as Mario and Luigi. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun stuff, and and yeah, I, I I don't remember the exact origin of it. I just remember it kind of was a was like it was a thing I kind of threw out there, and I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I just kept repeating it. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. And then when I started the podcast, I thought, oh, Blanket Fortress of Solitude, that's what I got to call it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a great synergy between the podcast and also your publishing company, Divided by Zero Books. And so uh, give us a, a little preview of that series about your, your publishing. Uh, how, how did you get into publishing? What made you, uh, you know, army veteran, uh, you know, moved around a lot. What, what made you want to explore book publishing of all things? I wanted to be a professional writer since I was probably about seven. And, but where I came from, that wasn't really a thing, you know, like it just, I mean, it's a thing that you heard of, but it wasn't, it didn't really feel like it was in the cards for me where I came from. Mm-hmm. And, and, and two, a lot of it was because like, Oh, I could write, but like, I wanted to like make movies and do all sorts of cool stuff. But writing was a way you could tell a story uh, that was cheaper, right? Like you didn't need a camera. You didn't need all this money <laughs> equipment and, and like, Oh, I could just write a book. But also, and, and, and I, I, and I wrote all the time. I had all these stories. I had like a real creative five or six year burst, right. Um, in the military from like age 20 to age about 27. And that's where the bulk of my stories were written. And I didn't really plan on writing them or publishing them. I just kind of wrote them for me in the beginning. And then around 2012, I discovered Kindle direct publishing where they're like, yeah, you can publish a book. And I'm like, no shit. That's, you know, like, like, Oh, like no one, there's no gatekeepers. There's nothing to stop me from doing it. No one's going to say, well, you know, you could, but this sucks. That's what the reviews are for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no one's stopping you from publishing it. And, you know, because in the early days, um, a one-star review was always a badge of honor because you knew you were a writer when someone read your thing and then found one little thing to nitpick on it and gave you a one-star review. And, and yeah, 
I kind of figured that you, a lot you're not, of you're not you're not legit until you got to hate mail. Kind of, yeah. And and it just kind of kept growing from there. You know, we our flagship title is the Thin Line of Life, and you know it's best summarized as soldiers and marines fight zombies and save pretty girls. Right? It's the most American thing I can think of. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, that, that summarizes it to a T and my dream is to turn it into an animated series one day. And I think we've got two six second animated commercials. And so if that's ever, as far as ever I get with it, like, that's pretty cool still too. Like I'm, I'm one of those guys that I'm like, Oh, people paid money for my art. That's amazing. And, 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 and yeah, and over the years, we just kind of kept developing and refining things. And then, you know, in 2016, I kind of noticed audiobooks were going to be a big thing. They were going to hit big. And then I thought, oh, I can, I could develop everything into audiobook format, right? Because Joe's maybe a big I fan of do... audiobooks. Yeah. Well, uh, I've got plenty of free download codes <laughs> if you're interested. But so I, I converted everything into audiobooks and then, you know, and then the pandemic happened and then fucking bam, the audiobooks like launched. Right. Granted, I still work a day job, so it's not, you know, I'm not rolling in that sweet content creator money, but I'm like, Oh, I can pay for things now with, you know, like, like they're actually generating some consistent monthly revenue. That's pretty cool. And, mm -hmm. you know, if someone's, listening to this and they're wanting to get started understand that you know maybe maybe you'll i mean maybe you're you know the you know reincarnation of ernest hemingway and you're just awesome from jump street and god bless you if you are if you're wanting to do the independent content creator route uh assume you'll make no money and if you do be grateful that anyone spent money on your art thank them endlessly and um, give yourself like 10 years to get good at it. <laughs> I, cause I'm on year eight, maybe nine. Yeah, 2013 is the 10 year anniversary. So we're closing up on year nine. And it, it's, it's, yeah, it takes a while, but what's your next question, man? Um, so, I mean, you, you've already hit it at, hit on a couple of your, your popular titles. And so, um, yeah. I guess I can open it to the floor if there's anything else that you, you have burning in your chest or if there's anything Joe's got, but I think, I think this concludes the formal part of, of the interview. Where are we going to talk about the liberation of earth? Oh, uh, you want, you want to get into liberation of earth real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, that that's the oh, book uh, Liberation of Earth, which I have read. Um, well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, um, that's probably probably the best thing I've done, right? In terms of like printed word, um, or at least it's the densest, right? It means the most. You know, like you can. Not every story has to be like Stalingrad, right? Sometimes it can just be Transformers, mm -hmm. but. <laughs> the liberation of earth is about uh 
two guys going to university in a world that had been taken over by aliens a hundred years before, right around when Teddy Roosevelt was president. And it's, it's very much a question of peaceful resistance against violent revolution. Right. And, you know, it's very much, you know, Magneto versus Xavier, Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, which is the right move, you know? And, Mm -hmm. I structured this story because you've got two factions. You've got the Empire and then you've got um, the rebels. The rebels are kind of the descendants of the government of of the military of the United States. Right. And. But they're also, you know, the sort of guys that will blow up a market square to get one imperial officer. Right. So it was kind of a Mm -hmm. study on. Um. Fuck, I had a better way of saying this. Um, it was a study on extremist political movements. It asked the question, why do people join extremist political violent revolutionary movements? And it kind of says, oh, a lot of it was uh, uh, people because to succeed in a society, you have to conform at a certain level. Right. And yes, we're all special. We're all different, but we all wear pants to work, you know. We all, we all drive on the right side of the road. So you're conforming at a certain level Mm -hmm. and it, it, it it talks and on the the liberation of earth world is much harsher. It's much more dangerous, but it says that, you know, uh, it, it kind of, after spending so long in the military, my enemy for lack of a better word was radical Islamic terrorism. Right. And so I thought, oh, why are people joining these movements? Well, and it's not the successful people that are joining these movements, the people who haven't succeeded in the society for whatever reason. Right. Um, because if you to not to support, hmm, I had a good way of saying this, the ones that don't join those movements have a level of success based on conforming to the society to which they live. Therefore, they're more likely to defend it because that society supports their way of life. Right. Why would you bite the, the hand ones that join the you're already successful? Exactly. Right. The ones that join the extremist movements, right? Let's say Antifa or the Proud Boys. They're not, there's not a lot of difference between those two. You know, they like to beat up people in the streets and commit violence in the name of their own political ideologies, you know, and, and they would disagree and say, Oh, there's lots of difference between us. Not really. You're, you're expressing political violence, right. Against uh, uh, your fellow citizens. And so, but people that join those movements have not found a level of success or acceptance in our society. Therefore, they're going to these fringe places that take just about anybody because, you know, you, you got to be a true believer to put on the vest and pull the cord. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's a suicide bomber is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, and mm-hmm. yeah. the liberation of earth. <laughs> Figured that out. Yeah. Sorry. Like, I'm, <laughs> sometimes I, I forget people don't understand all my references, but, um, and the liberation of Earth asks those questions a lot, right? And so the two main characters, you have one guy who grew up around 
uh, the Rebels, right? And he saw just what the Rebels did and who they were and how they always kind of kept, they weren't very, they, they were just good enough to cause misery, pain, and destruction, right? They were, that's the only way they could affect things because their, their movement, their actions, their, was built on desperate, violent rage, that's not how you build a stable society. And then you've got on the other side, the empire who, you know, has a vested interest in keeping cholera outbreaks from breaking out, but they're not afraid to like massacre a city and, you know, put heads on spikes to send a message to the locals. Right. So they're not exactly the perfect shining beacon of democratic justice either. So then these two guys meet in college, the guy who grew up around the rebels, and you got a guy that was um, an imperial, imperial soldier for 20 years, right? So then they're both trying to, they're both best friends and they're trying to work together and figure out the question of how do we make change on the inside, right? It's the, it's the quote where, you know, you don't, you, 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 you affect the things around you, right? Like how do you, you know, you can, you can, you can build lasting change a piece at a time. Right. And it's through hard work. It's, it's, it's not as exciting as the, you know, like, Oh, we're going to storm the Capitol and, 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 you know, whatever. It's not that it's, we're going to put in the work every single day. And, and the question they're asking is how do we do that? And how do we create a better world without destroying it, without being, and without being corrupted ourselves. That's the liberation of earth. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I, I have a, po- a very notable positive review out there circulating around the internet. So um, definitely yeah. very thought provoking that asks you to consider that line between idealism and pragmatism, um, wondering to what extent you can work within a system to change it versus tearing the system down entirely. So, um, certainly a very interesting read I I found. Well, I appreciate you, man. And thanks for having me on too. Like this has been great. I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah. So glad to hear that. We appreciate your time and, uh, you coming on the show and, uh, is, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners? You, you've got their ear. Um, check out the podcast at Blanket Fortress of Solitude on Spotify. Um, everything we do is collected up at dividedbyzerobooks.com. And if you want to support us on Patreon, we have a patron only podcast called the Dead President Society at patreon.com slash dividedbyzerobooks. All right. Once again, this has been Derwin Lester. Thank you so much, Derwin. Thank you, man. I appreciate you.